You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm here today with Dr. Meg Kwan, a primary care pediatrician at the Carabot Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today we're talking about breastfeeding. I'm going to start with a little bit of background on breastfeeding, which has grown in popularity over the past few decades, likely in part to its many documented health, emotional, and cognitive benefits. The AAP considers breastfeeding the normative method of infant feeding and has documented the many benefits of breastfeeding in their 2012 statement called Breastfeeding and the Use of Human Milk. In 2011, the Surgeon General emphasized breastfeeding as a public health imperative, and breastfeeding is strongly promoted by many physician groups beyond the AAP. However, while 81% of infants initiate breastfeeding, only 22% of U.S. infants are breastfed exclusively at age six months, as is recommended by the AAP, and there are significant disparities across race and socioeconomic status. Maternity wards and birth hospitals have increasingly adopted evidence-based approaches to breastfeeding, including the Baby-Friendly Hospital Initiative. But in order for these goals to be achieved, outpatient pediatricians need to continue these efforts. So that's where Dr. Kwan comes in. And she's gonna answer a few questions today about breastfeeding and primary care. So thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Given what we know about the benefits of breastfeeding, why aren't all primary care pediatricians endorsing and supporting breastfeeding universally? So I think that pediatricians overwhelmingly are supportive of breastfeeding and that they are aware of the many health benefits of breastfeeding and they routinely recommend and counsel their families to breastfeed. What I think happens though is when we um, encounter breastfeeding problems Mm -hmm. and it's the management of those breastfeeding problems where we may hit some roadblocks. Um, Unfortunately, I think for a lot of pediatricians that just comes down to training in the management of lactation and breastfeeding issues. I know when I was doing my residency years ago, I had almost no training in breastfeeding management. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think many of my colleagues um, are in a similar situation. Um, But the good news is that with the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative, there are a lot of opportunities for primary care clinicians to learn more about breastfeeding and the management of breastfeeding problems whether that's through hospital grand rounds or through continuing medical education at conferences, online CMEs, there's maintenance of certification programs um, tailored to breastfeeding. So there are a lot of opportunities to address those knowledge gaps. Um, And then the other thing I think that we all run into as primary care clinicians is the issue of time. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, it takes time to do a thorough newborn feeding assessment. Um, And this is where I think it's really, really helpful to have a team in place in your office, whether that's your nurses who are trained um, or a lactation consultant in your office or being very familiar with community resources so that you can make sure that all your families who might be encountering breastfeeding problems are getting the appropriate support they need to address those problems. Some of my patients are told to stop breastfeeding for many different reasons. So when I'm thinking about who can't breastfeed, what are those rare but true contraindications to breastfeeding? So 
So you are right, there are a few contraindications to breastfeeding, but fortunately these are pretty rare. So I'll go through some of them. Um, class, classic galactosemia mm -hmm. is one that um, is, is obvious. Mm -hmm. um, in the United States and in the industrialized world, HIV infection is considered a contraindication to breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. um, it should be worth noting that in the developing world, that recommendation may be different mm -hmm. due to the risk of malnutrition and diarrheal disease. But here in the United States and the industrialized world, mm -hmm. um, HIV is a contraindication. Mm -hmm. um, active tuberculosis until the mother has been treated um, for at least two weeks and is no longer considered infectious. Mm -hmm. There are a very limited number of medications, and fortunately these are few. Mm -hmm. um, the chemotherapeutic medicines are um, a big class the statins for high cholesterol, mm -hmm. and then there's a few others. Um, illicit drugs, that would be marijuana, cocaine, PCP. We know that those drugs enter the breast milk and can have profound effects on the newborn brain, so those mm -hmm. would be contraindications. Um, and then there's a few other rare infections. Um, active HSV lesion on the breast, mm -hmm. that would be a contraindication as well as a mom who developed varicella right around the time of delivery, mm -hmm. so five days before through two days after. Mm -hmm. Hope hopefully we're seeing that less due to the vaccine. Um, and then human T-cell lymphotrophic virus or untreated um, brucellosis. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, most of these situations are pretty uncommon. Mm -hmm. So what are the breastfeeding rates of initiation and duration in Pennsylvania? So the good news is that at nationally, we are now at um, an all-time high in terms of breastfeeding initiation rates, and those numbers, according to the Center for Disease Control, have increased every year. Um, so the national average, again, is 81%. In Pennsylvania, we are, unfortunately, a little bit lower. We have a 73% breastfeeding initiation rate, mm -hmm. um, but that number has been increasing. Um, however, our continuation rates are still something that we struggle with both nationally and locally. Mm -hmm. um, in Pennsylvania, our six-month any breastfeeding is 47%, and then our exclusive breastfeeding rate is only 20%. Mm -hmm. So in Pennsylvania, only one of five infants is, is reaching that AAP recommendation of exclusive breastfeeding. Hmm. Well, that's unfortunate, and hopefully we can try to do a little bit better as providers to help encourage that number. Um, it, sometimes what I hear uh, are patients who failed to initiate breastfeeding in the newborn nursery. For whatever reason, they struggled, they started using formula. When they come for their first newborn visit, some providers feel like maybe it's too late. They've already started formula, game over, or is there something that we can do? Can we initiate breastfeeding in those newborn visits when we see patients? Um, and I would say absolutely. So it is not too late. And that is a scenario that we encounter fairly frequently. Unfortunately, um, you know, hospital stays can be very short and that moms may only spend 36 hours in the hospital. And it's not an uncommon situation to have where a baby hasn't latched. You know, optimally, they get good lactation support in the hospital where they're at least taught to express their milk and mm -hmm. kind of work on helping the baby learn to breastfeed, and then we can kind of follow that plan on the outpatient side. But sometimes we do have a situation where the baby really hasn't latched and the mom has been formula feeding. And if it's early, um, we can absolutely work on helping that mom, you know, work on getting the baby to the breast or if the baby's not quite ready, which we'll see um, pretty frequently in our late preterm and early term mm -hmm. babies that may be discharged pretty quickly, um, is getting moms 
um, expressing their milk regularly. Mm -hmm. So when that baby is developmentally ready to breastfeed, mm -hmm. that she has the supply to meet her baby's needs. If there's a mom who hasn't been expressing milk or latching the baby, how long is kind of too late to start trying? So obviously the sooner the better, but I've had moms, you know, 10 days, two weeks out with a lot of motivation and a lot of support that they've been able to um, initiate lactation and, and have been successful. Once we get to a month, if there's been no expression, um, it, it's, I won't say impossible, but, but fairly difficult. Okay. That's good to know that even though two weeks in, you know, if you're seeing someone for a weight check appointment or something, that you might still have some success in a motivated. Yes. Yes, and I would say that mom, um, you know, it helps if she's obviously motivated, but those, those babies need to be closely followed to make sure that yes. they're gaining appropriately. Yes, definitely. Um, so one of the tricky things about breastfeeding education with families is walking that fine line between encouraging and supporting breastfeeding, which we know has all of these benefits, but not shaming moms who are using formula, who decide to end up formula feeding exclusively. So how do you kind of walk that balance of, um, encouraging something without making them feel guilty when they're not successful at breastfeeding? Um, so this this can be a difficult scenario and this is a question I, I get asked a lot and um, or I hear providers say they, they really don't want to make moms feel guilty and and what I would say is to kind of look at breastfeeding as we would any other health decision that a family makes. Um, the AAP policy statement on breastfeeding specifically states that we should not look at breastfeeding as simply a lifestyle choice, mm -hmm. that this is an important health decision that has long-term consequences. Mm -hmm. So I think it helps to kind of frame breastfeeding in the same way that we would talk to families about vaccines or safe sleep mm -hmm. or secondhand smoke exposure um, and talk about it in that context. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that really as pediatricians, we have an ethical obligation to make sure that our families are making an informed decision when it comes to infant feeding. Mm -hmm. And that means not just being aware of the benefits of breastfeeding, but also that there are risks to formula feeding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the risks you mentioned that you talked to them about risks of formula feeding? So what specifically do you say? So I think that we always talk to families about the benefits of breastfeeding, but I think it's also important to sort of flip it the other way and mm -hmm. that, you know, your baby is um, at greater risk of infections and mm -hmm. that's gastrointestinal infections, respiratory infections, um, there's some maternal risk to not breastfeeding, um, there's some increasing evidence that breastfeeding protects moms in terms of cardiovascular health, mm -hmm. in terms of blood pressure, um, so kind of just flipping the conversation a little bit and, you know, coming from a place where breastfeeding is the normative method of infant feeding to sort of choose something that um, is not, I just want to make sure that that family has, has thought that decision thoroughly. Mm -hmm. Great. So you have a lot of uh, letters after your name, Dr. Kalon, and some of them are that you're an IBCLC, which is an International Board Certified Lactation Consultant. So for offices who aren't lucky enough to have an IBCLC like you, how can they find lactation support in their community? So I think there's um, many different ways that you know pediatricians can connect with breastfeeding resources. I think a good place to start is your local birth hospital. Most likely is going to have good lactation support, mm -hmm. and so start with those lactation consultants and see what kind of outpatient support do they have. Do they have a warm line for breastfeeding questions? Mm -hmm. um, do they have an outpatient-based lactation visit where families can go back for additional support? Mm -hmm. 
And then it's really important to know that under the Affordable Care Act, that lactation services are a covered benefit with no cost sharing, mm -hmm. so that families should be able to contact their insurance provider and find out who is um, who are the lactation consultants in their network so they can get lactation support. Oftentimes a home visit for lactation um, is covered and the family may not be aware of that, so that's wow. an important. Yeah, that's a great benefit. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. Great. And I know for those who practice within the city of Philadelphia, many, I think almost all of our birth hospitals have free lactation support groups. If parents like the group setting um, uh, for education that they can go that are usually led by a lactation consultant from the birth hospital too. Yes. And those have been really popular and I think mm -hmm. increasingly attended. Mm -hmm. um, our office also started a breastfeeding support group and that's mm -hmm. something that um, you know has been a great benefit. And is fairly easy to do for an office, and mm -hmm. I think the moms have really appreciated it. Great. Many mothers are advised to stop breastfeeding while taking certain medications, which we already touched on, although most maternal medications are compatible with breastfeeding. So why does this happen, and where can providers get accurate information on this topic? So this um, this is a really important topic, and I think this is um, sadly one of my biggest pet peeves mm -hmm. when I find a mom who is breastfeeding and was doing great, and then went to perhaps an urgent care, was treated for a UTI, and mm -hmm. told to pump and dump. And I'm seeing that mom sort of yeah. after the case 10 days later where her supply has been diminished. Mm -hmm. That's very difficult for a mom to do mm -hmm. with, a, with a newborn. Um, and so there's some great resources that clinicians should be aware of. I think one of the easiest access um, universally is there's this app, and it's also a website that um, is called LACTMED. Mm -hmm. It's L-A-C-T, capital M-E-D. Mm -hmm. And that's a resource from the National Institutes of Health and the National Library of Medicine. And they actually have an app that you can download. So if you're a clinician on call, it is at your fingertips on your smartphone. So that's great. a great resource. Um, there's the books, The Medication in Mother's Milk mm -hmm. by Dr. Thomas Hale. And those are updated periodically, and we do have access to that information in the CHOP network through EPIC. Mm -hmm. And so that's another great resource. Um, I take it kind of one step further with my breastfeeding families, and I wait till the one-month visit because I don't want to overwhelm a new mom. But I tell them, if, if a provider ever tells you you need to stop breastfeeding, mm -hmm. um, please call our office because sometimes we do have more updated information. Mm -hmm. um, because unfortunately, the medications that are contraindicated are pretty small. Mm -hmm. Right. And sometimes it's just being strategic about maybe when you take your medicine versus when you breastfeed or what to monitor the infant for in terms of potential Correct. side effects, Correct. but they should keep breastfeeding and we can give them all that education about what they should look out for. Correct. And sometimes there's alternatives too. Sometimes mm -hmm. I've counseled a mom to say, you know, this wouldn't be the safest medication for mm -hmm. breastfeeding. You know, could you call your provider and ask about these medications? And right. oftentimes providers are very willing to help that mom and make that switch. Great. So let's go over to another controversial topic. Frenulum clipping um, has a lot of controversy around it. So what are some signs that an infant may benefit from a phrenotomy? And how, sh how soon should this be done if it's being done? So, yes, yeah, so frenulum clipping has been a hot topic in lactation, though I think it's becoming less controversial. There has been some nice published evidence showing that um, tongue tie, which is defined as a tongue that has a frenulum that is very unusually thick, tight, or short, um, that this will affect infant feeding and lead to maternal pain, poor milk transfer. 
And then additionally, that doing a phrenotomy, the procedure to release the tongue tie, um, is, is going to improve breastfeeding outcomes. So we have a, a fair amount of literature now that shows us that that's the case. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is reducing some of the controversy. Um, when I am evaluating a baby for a tongue tie, like anything in medicine, we're going to start with the, the history. Mm -hmm. And so I always ask breastfeeding moms, um, are you experiencing pain while feeding? And I know that the uh, textbooks all tell us that breastfeeding should not be painful at all. And I think most of us that do primary care recognize that that is not our typical practice. Mm -hmm. um, but what I would sort of counsel clinicians is that it, it should not be excruciatingly painful. And that typical nipple soreness, um, usually the, the pain is highest at the very beginning of the mm -hmm. feeding and then increases or decreases, I'm yeah. sorry, it gets better as the feeding continues. Mm -hmm. And so when moms report that the pain is excruciating and continues or worsens throughout the feeding, to me that's a real red flag that mm -hmm. we need to assess this baby carefully for a tongue tie. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I'm doing my physical exam, I want to look at tongue function mm -hmm. and tongue mobility in three, di three different directions. Um, I want to make sure that the baby can extend their tongue past the lower gum line. Mm -hmm. um, I want to also see that that baby can elevate their tongue to at least the middle to the roof of the mouth. And then we should be able to see the tongue lateralize a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and when the tongue mobility is restricted, um, oftentimes we'll see a little bit of notching of the tongue. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and oftentimes this is fairly obvious. Mm -hmm. Given what we know about the mechanics of breastfeeding, we know that that baby needs to extend their tongue out and really cup the nipple areola complex. You can see why you know, a mom that, or a baby that has a tongue tie, the mom is gonna be experiencing significant pain mm -hmm. and that baby is not gonna be transferring milk effectively. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, those babies need to be referred for a phrenotomy um, as, as quickly as possible mm -hmm. so we can improve that breastfeeding. Yep. And then for those in the in the CHOP care network, I've noticed that CHOP ENT is very good about getting those kids in pretty quickly. Yeah, so you really, if you submit an expedited appointment, I've been pretty impressed that the nurse practitioners often will call that mom that same day. Yep, great. For moms who are worried about low milk supply, which is something that I hear a lot, uh, what things do you recommend that are evidence-based in terms of helping them increase their supply? There are, fortunately, moms that have true low milk supply. Um, it's a pretty small percentage, actually, mm -hmm. of anywhere from like 3 to 7% in the literature. So it's actually mm -hmm. not that common. Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases, pumping can help those moms. I think really maximizing breastfeeding support mm -hmm. is, is important. Um, there are a huge number of herbal galactologs that have been increasing in popularity. Mm -hmm. And how I always counsel moms is we really don't have any evidence to tell us that those are effective. Mm -hmm. And I find a lot of moms are looking for sort of a magic pill that's going to make them produce right. milk. And so what I always emphasize is nothing can replace effective breastfeeding, mm -hmm. frequent breast emptying. And that's always going to be our number one recommendation. Yeah. Um, a lot of the herbal medications are based off herbs that have been used for centuries. Mm -hmm. And I think in most situations, those are safe. So I, you know, if a mom wants to use it, I explain we don't have a whole lot of evidence, but that it's probably safe. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I always encourage her to share that information with me. Mm -hmm. Great. 
once someone returns to work, they often stop breastfeeding. So how can we empower our working mother patient moms to continue breastfeeding? So yeah, this is a huge topic and this is something that, you know, moms unfortunately are faced to deal with often very early in the United States, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes as early as six weeks. Mm -hmm. So the Affordable Care Act does specifically um, state that women are entitled to a place to pump their milk um, that's not a bathroom and that they have to have the time. It doesn't have to be paid time in order to pump. So I really try to just approach this that, um, you know, this is something that's normal and that if the baby has been thriving till this point that, you know, with the proper support, I think that the mom can continue to um, thrive and, and provide express breast milk for their baby. And I really emphasize that it's going to be in everyone's advantage for that mom to continue pumping because mm -hmm. their baby is going to be sick less. Um, they're going to miss less childcare mm -hmm. and then mom's going to miss work less. Right. And so um, their employers should be on board with that. Mm -hmm. And this is how we change workplace culture, right? It's one at a time we all decide that this is what we're going to do. And then workplaces also are encouraged to support it when the culture is that this is what's normal. Right. And I think pediatric practices can absolutely model that and make sure that their employees have um, adequate places to pump in time. Definitely. So what patients do you recommend using donor milk? And we don't talk about this much in primary care as much as we do in the NICU setting, but while there are licensed donor milk banks like the one at CHOP, there are also people who find donor milk from friends, family, or on the internet. And so what are the risks of this practice? So first of all, I think this practice is happening widespread. So if you are unaware of it, this is called informal milk sharing, and, and this is happening. And I think people are shocked that it's happening, but it is definitely happening. So it's important to counsel families that there are absolutely risks in doing so. Um, the risk of HIV transmission would be the, the number one risk that we need to be worried about. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at moms who purchase milk on the internet, there actually has been uh, several published studies that have shown that um, the rates of bacterial colonization with pathogenic bacteria, 75% um, in one study. Um, there's another study that showed that it was contaminated with cow's milk. So what mm -hmm. they were getting was um, not what they thought they were getting. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's important that moms understand these risks. What are some of the ways that the AAP encourages us to develop breastfeeding-friendly office practices in their April 2017 clinical report? Um, so I would encourage everybody to read that clinical report because I thought it was so comprehensive and so specific. It was called the Breastfeeding Friendly Physician's Office, and it really was a very easy to follow outline that had 14 specific evidence-based office practices that we in primary care can do to support breastfeeding. Um, some of them are maybe things that you are already doing. Um, some things may be more challenging. And I know at our office, we have formed a committee to kind of look at this as to how we can implement this in our office. Um, just to highlight one of the recommendations that I think worth mentioning, it does call for the elimination of the practice of distributing free formula and other um, items that are sponsored by the formula companies. Mm -hmm. And I know that we in pediatrics have a pretty long tradition of distributing formula samples in the office, and there's really clear evidence that distributing formula to breastfeeding moms is one of the um, biggest factors associated with early breastfeeding cessation. So mm -hmm. that is a practice that I think each office really needs to, to look at and, and, and really put to a stop. Mm -hmm. 
And so without being an IBCLC, can we as primary care pediatricians bill for lactation visits outside of the routine newborn encounter or weight check appointments? Um, and I would say absolutely. You know, even though I'm an IBCLC, I bill as a pediatrician mm -hmm. um, because the reimbursement in most cases is higher. So the AAP does have a coding resource on how we can bill for breastfeeding problems. Um, and that's easy to access if you're an AAP member. It's called Supporting Breastfeeding and Lactation, the Primary Care Pediatrician's Guide to Getting Paid. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Kaman, and giving us all of these practical tips and references that we can use and ways that we can find lactation support in our community. I'm going to post the guidelines that you referenced in this podcast on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. Thanks for listening today and thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.